Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 34, Ptolemaic Egypt, the Incestuous Lion's Brood. With the unusually peaceful death of Ptolemy I Soter in 282 BC, you would think that the remaining Diadochoi, all two of them, would breathe a collective sigh of relief that the antagonistic political mastermind had passed on to the afterlife. However, as I discussed in the last episode, the House of Ptolemy was not limited to one or two successors, as the Seleucids or Antigonids were. The former king of Egypt was as productive in siring as he was in ruling, fathering no less than ten children of his own, and adopting three others into his household. Upon his death, he left a formidable collection of ambitious successors, Ptolemy II, Arsinoe II, Magas, and Ptolemy Charinus, who would all seek to make their mark on the political landscape of the Hellenistic world, which had yet to settle from the tumultuous wars of the Diadochoi. The new king of Egypt, Ptolemy II, was the chosen successor of his father, Ptolemy I. Born around 309-308, he was the only son of the marriage between Ptolemy I and the primary wife, Berenike I, making him the heir apparent to the Egyptian throne. His career up till his succession is relatively unknown, but we can assume he was raised and educated at the court of Alexandria under the best tutors money could buy. In 285, Ptolemy I considered his 25-year-old son competent enough to raise to the status of co-king, essentially entering into a state of semi-retirement while Ptolemy II was given time to practice his administrative duties. Thankfully for both Ptolemies, the final clashes of the Diadochoi had largely been taking place outside of Egyptian territory. With both father and son remaining, it allowed for an overall smoother transition of power once Ptolemy the Elder died in 282, contrary to the succession crisis and rebellions that would break out in the neighboring Seleucid Empire. While things were a bit more complicated than what I have described here, and while I will delve more deeply into this transfer of power and time, I believe that it is more important to turn away from Egypt at this point to some of the goings-on with the other children of Ptolemy, who were directly involved in the chaotic events to the north. Let us turn to Ptolemy's most notable daughter, Arsinoe. Arsinoe was about eight years older than her brother, born roughly in 316. And as royal daughter, she was expected to play her role in the political matchmaking for the well-being of the kingdom. In 299, at the age of 17, she would be sent from Egypt up north near the homeland of her forebears, marrying one of the most powerful men in the region, the 60-year-old King Lysimachus I in Thrace. Knowing the nature of Ptolemy, there was probably an ulterior motive behind choosing Arsinoe in particular for this arrangement. After the Battle of Ipsus and the sundering of the former Antigonid Empire in 301, Lysimachus emerged as the premier ruler in the Greek peninsula and the Bosphorus. As tension was rising with Seleucus I, Ptolemy probably felt compelled to create a marriage alliance with Lysimachus as a safeguard. This was standard practice for Ptolemy. But unlike her half-sisters, who were also married to kings and rulers, Arsinoe would not settle with anything less than requiring a powerful position herself, setting the standard for politically aggressive Ptolemaic royal women for the rest of the Hellenistic period. Lysimachus quickly fell head over heels for his new young bride, no doubt thanks to her charm and youth, and he gifted her productive cities along the Black Sea for her own personal source of revenue. 
There is even an apocryphal story by the 2nd century AD writer Athenaeus, claiming that Lysimachus brutally tortured a member of his own staff who had the guts to mock Arsinoe's drinking habits. The relationship between the two was not free of dilemma, and it resulted in a number of problems for the rest of the royal household. One of Lysimachus's wives, Amastris, was insulted at the backseat position she found herself in, and left for her home in protest. But in only a few short years, Arsinoe managed to be handed the reins as Queen of Thrace and temporarily that of Macedon, and produced three sons in quick succession, the eldest, Ptolemy Epigonus, a boy also named Lysimachus, and Philip. Much of her marriage to Lysimachus was spent near the center stage of the last wars of the Diadochoi, as her husband would be involved in the turmoil that would ravage Macedon from about 295 to the late 280s, contending with political giants such as Demetrius Polyarchites and Pyrrhus of Epirus for control of the throne. While he was occupied with his territorial conflicts, Arsinoe had kept herself busy in the court of the capital city Lysimachia, actively campaigning for the well-being of her children. Though Arsinoe was definitely the premier royal lady of the household, and given great amounts of wealth for her personal control, initially her children were almost certainly not going to inherit the throne once Lysimachus died. That privilege belonged to the talented and popular Agathocles, the eldest son of Lysimachus's first marriage, who had won glory by serving in military campaigns against steppe nomads and more successfully against Demetrius Polyarchites. But by 283, Agathocles would be executed on the orders of his father, presumably under the accusation of treason. There has been considerable debate on whether or not Arsinoe had a hand in Agathocles' death. Those arguing that she had played a major role point to the inherently conflicting interests of Arsinoe and Agathocles, not to mention that he was married to Arsinoe's hated half-sister Lysandra. In all fairness, with the course of royal politics in the Hellenistic world, it was very possible that Arsinoe's own children and Arsinoe herself would have been executed had Agathocles taken power, assessing the rival half-siblings as future threats to his rule. Lysimachus was also no fool, and there is evidence to suggest that Agathocles had hastened his own demise by making it a little too obvious that he was building a network of supporters to push his succession onto the throne. Either way, Agathocles was dead, and Lysandra with her children would flee to the court of Seleucus I, who had become increasingly hostile towards Lysimachus in recent years. Though it is certainly possible that Arsinoe had played a role in her stepson's execution, the wild card Ptolemy Keranus certainly added fuel to the fire and stirred up chaos in the household of Lysimachus. He was the eldest son of the marriage between Ptolemy I and Eurydice, born around 320, and with the position of eldest son, it was only natural that he would be considered the heir apparent. However, his mother was quickly pushed aside by Ptolemy to make way for his new wife, Berenike, whose children, Ptolemy II and Arsinoe, would become rivals for the Egyptian throne. The tension at the court of Alexandria must have been palpable, because Ptolemy didn't formally announce an heir until 285, when he made the unusual yet unsurprising move of passing over the elder Carinus in favor of the younger Ptolemy II as co-regent. There is evidence that this may not have gone as smoothly as is suggested, because according to a biography by Diogenes Laertius, the court tutor and philosopher Demetrius of Phalerum had advocated for Ptolemy Carinus to become the heir to the throne, to the point that he was soon imprisoned and exiled by Ptolemy II. Whether prompted by fear for his own safety, 
anger at being passed over, or some combination of both. The Thunderbolt would leave Alexandria in self-exile, choosing to reside at the court of Lysimachus with his sister Lysandra and his brother-in-law Agathocles. His status as exile did nothing to deter his ambitious and often irascible nature, and he would quickly immerse himself in the political turmoil of the region. If he was not going to inherit the throne of Egypt, he was going to have to make himself king through the good old-fashioned way, through blood and brutality. Being a son of Ptolemy, Carinus nevertheless was received at the court of Lysimachus with little issue. No doubt, Harsinoe's presence must have annoyed him greatly, with the feeling being mutual, and it is entirely possible that he had actively stoked the conflict between Agathocles and Arsinoe to get rid of her. But when Agathocles was killed, he fled along with Lysander to the Seleucid court, an exile once again. The siblings pressured Seleucus to avenge the fallen Agathocles and remove the oppressive and tyrannical Lysimachus, perhaps appealing to the Syrian king's desire to reunite with Macedon, but Seleucus and Lysimachus's relationship had been circling down the drain for some time anyways, so he likely didn't need much convincing or justification for war. Adopting Carinus into his trusted circle, Seleucus officially declared war on Lysimachus by 282. I find it pretty incredible that the last of the conflicts between the surviving successors would be fueled by rival children of the Ptolemaic household, with Lysander and Carinus on the Seleucid side, and Arsinoe on the Lysimachian one. Seleucus and Lysimachus would contend in their final showdown in February of 281 at Choropedium in western Anatolia. The fighting between the now elderly kings was apparently rough, and in the end, Lysimachus was killed in action, granting Seleucus nearly unrestricted access to Macedon. The collapse of Lysimachian power was immediately felt throughout Asia Minor, with the pro-Seleucid factions rising up in a number of cities. Arsinoe, now without a throne, was nearly killed herself when the Seleucid supporters started battering down the gates of Ephesus, where she was stationed before the final battle. According to Polyinus, she managed to escape death by dirtying her face up and switching her royal garments with that of an unfortunate slave. And as the slave was killed by the unknowing opponents, Arsinoe had already made passage on a ship to safety. Seleucus did not have long to enjoy his victory, because roughly seven months later, Ptolemy Carinus offered the Seleucid king a tour of the area and perhaps some recreational hunting. When Seleucus had his back turned, the Thunderbolt struck, plunging a dagger into the king's back and leaving him to die, speeding away towards the city of Lysimachia. There, Carinus had managed to amass a body of supporters, who placed the royal diadem upon his brow and declared him king, and even a former body of Seleucid soldiers pledged loyalty to the Thunderbolt. This all suggests that he had been planning this move for quite some time, and conveniently for Carinus, a seemingly inevitable retaliation by Seleucus's son, Antiochus, would never materialize, given that the new Seleucid ruler was far and away in Central Asia when word eventually reached his ears. To further assuage any claims that Carinus had violated the sanctity of Seleucus's friendship, the new king went on a public relations spree in vindicating his right to rule. He made peace with the neighboring Nicomedes of Bithynia and Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was probably too busy planning his own invasion of Italy to try and make a claim on Macedon anyways. He even wrote a letter to his brother Ptolemy II solidifying his position, and the rough outline of this letter put forth by Justin is both seething and condescending at the same time. Quote, he laid aside all feelings of resentment at being deprived of his father's kingdom, and he would no longer ask that from a brother which he had more honorably obtained from his father's enemy. End quote. 
This doesn't mean that he didn't face resistance in claiming both Lysimachus' kingdom and the throne of Macedon. Antigonus Gonatus, the son of the famous Demetrius Polyarchetes, had attempted to capitalize on Lysimachus' and Seleucus' death with his conquest of Macedon by sea. But Carinus was more of a general than anyone realized, and used the former Lysimachean fleets to rout Antigonus back to the Greek mainland. By 280, Ptolemy Carinus was now king of Macedon, achieving what his father had failed to do 20 years prior. There was still one problem that the ambitious Thunderbolt had to deal with, Arsinoe. One of the most shocking events of this whole affair is the political alliance, a marriage alliance to be more specific, between that of Ptolemy Carinus and Arsinoe. Now, scholars have wondered why on earth the normally politically astute Arsinoe would even think of marrying a hated and demonstrably ruthless opportunist, ignoring the fact that he is technically her half-brother. The motives for Carinus are clear. Arsinoe's three children had just as much of a claim as Ptolemy did to the throne of Lysimachus in Macedon, and she could remain a political threat to his rule since she had not sailed back to Alexandria and chose to remain in the region. If he had offered to protect those princelings, of whom only Ptolemy Epigonos could theoretically be of age, then he would reduce the taint of his numerous betrayals of Lysimachus and Seleucus on his reputation, and at the same time prevent a military retaliation from Ptolemy II if something happened to Arsinoe. In Arsinoe's case, she clearly sought to retain her position as queen, something which Carinus offered her with the sweetened caveat that he would not practice polygamy. The fact that he openly vouched for the safety of her sons, even if they could be reused for promoting her status as a queen and royal mother, was probably of high concern to her as a parent. I am not sure why she just didn't return home back to Egypt once she escaped Ephesus, but perhaps she felt that the memory of Lysimachus would trump any political threat by Carinus. In winter of 281-280, Arsinoe agreed to a vow of marriage to Carinus, ordering that the king swear an oath in front of the gods and a witness of her own choosing to promise to both protect her children and her position as queen. Ptolemy Carinus swore to uphold his oath, and both were wed with royal diadems placed upon their brows. The thunderbolt was then invited by Arsinoe to journey to the city of Cassandrea for a festival to celebrate. Also present in the city were the younger teenage children of Arsinoe, Lysimachus and Philip, whom Carinus openly showed kindness and affection towards as they greeted them, adopting them as if they were his own. Tragically, this was all simply a ruse on Ptolemy's part. Within a very short while, Justin implies only a matter of hours after meeting them, Ptolemy had seized the citadel and ordered the death of both boys. Justin tragically recounts the teenagers hiding in fear in their mother's bosom, and when the daggers of assassins had reached her children, Arsinoe cried out in horror multiple times, begging them to kill her instead. The two boys died in their mother's arms, and Ptolemy Carinus dragged her out of the city, drenched in the blood of her own children and in a state of utter despair. Supported by two handmaidens, she would flee to the island of Samothrace in the Aegean Sea in exile. Arsinoe's gamble for her children's safety had failed, and while she would grieve, she could take solace in the fact that her eldest child, Ptolemy Epignus, was still alive, while Ptolemy Carinus had set himself up as master of the house in Macedon, his rule uncontested. Well, seemingly uncontested. Despite all of the work and cold calculus of Carinus's scheming, his reign would be brief and end brutally. As I extensively discussed in episode 20, 
Macedon was threatened by a huge band of Celts, who took the instability of the Greek peninsula and the Balkans as an opportunity to invade and plunder, and Carinus would attempt to meet them in battle in early 279. Unfortunately for him, his army was routed, and after he was tossed off his war elephant which he rode atop in battle, his head was cut off and placed upon a pike to be carried around the Celtic army for all to see. Ptolemy Carinus was the model of ambition during the wars of the Diadochoi. Cold and calculating, he managed to brilliantly weave his way from political exile to trusted court member of two ruling kings, before finally becoming king in his own right, for only a brief period of time. His behavior had not engendered himself to the writers of antiquity though, and virtually all of the accounts portray him as a monster, viewing his death at the hands of the Celts as a sort of divine justice for his many crimes. I must wonder though, would his reputation be viewed as negatively as it was had he remained on the throne of Macedon for an extended period of time? It's just a hypothetical. But what was fact was that Macedon was once again placed into a crisis by Carinus' death, which is out of our scope for this episode. I think it's high time to check up on Ptolemy II, because I think wedding bells are in the distance once again. Before you enjoy your regularly scheduled Hellenistic Age podcast episode, I'd like to tell you about my podcast, The History of the British Isles. My name's Henry. I make 10 to 15 minute long episodes diving into British and Irish history. If you want to learn more about the Viking invasion, the Battle of Hastings, or the mess that is the Royal Succession in Scotland, come and check me out. Search History of the British Isles podcast wherever you found this. Now... Back to your regularly scheduled podcast. With the death of Ptolemy Carinus and the exile of Arsinoe to Samothrace, let us return back to Egypt to see what has been going on. The chaos of Lysimachus' death had partially made its way to Egypt because Ptolemy II himself was involved in a marriage alliance with the king of Thrace. In roughly 283, while he was still co-ruling with his father, he married Arsinoe, the daughter of Lysimachus, who from now on we will refer to as Arsinoe I. The marriage was a fruitful one, as she gave Ptolemy three children, her eldest sons Ptolemy and Lysimachus, and a daughter Berenike. As a brief aside, I encourage you all to check my website and or the show notes for a detailed family tree for the Ptolemaic dynasty, because these names aren't going to become creative anytime soon. So it's best that you check it out to follow along, and I apologize if I don't make it clear enough in the way I tell the story. Anyways, despite the surface level of a happy marriage, the death of Lysimachus in 281 set the stage of events that are confusing, poorly documented, and full of juicy intrigue. What we know for sure is that between 280 and 275 BC, Ptolemy would divorce Arsinoe I on the grounds of conspiracy, and she would be exiled to the upper Egyptian city of Coptos while her supporters in the alleged plot were executed. The meaning of this has been hotly debated largely because of the implications due to none other than Arsinoe, the sister of Ptolemy II, and from now on shall be known as Arsinoe II. Arsinoe's exile to Samothrace did not last for long, and the traditional narrative as put forth by Theocritus, not the poet, suggests that she had returned home to Egypt in 279 after 20 years of absence and set up shop at the court of her brother. Immediately, she begun to whisper in his ear about the alleged plotting of Arsinoe I, 
and in time convinced him to dispose of his current wife. Many scholars have gone with this line of thinking, and not without reason. Arsinoe was no slouch when it came to working her way to power, though not always with the same levels of success, as seen with the incident with Ptolemy Carinus. And if you believe the earlier allegations of her conspiring against her stepson Agathocles, then it would fit perfectly with this characterization, never mind the benefits of eliminating a political rival. Alternative theories have been put forward by other scholars, such as Elizabeth Carney in her recent biography, Arsinoe of Macedon and Egypt, A Royal Life. In it, she disagrees with the scheming image of Arsinoe II, and points out that there are a number of reasons why she may not have been involved. Number one, Arsinoe II might have not returned home to Egypt until as late as 276, because we are given such poor chronology from what little sources we have and there is no direct accusation by said sources that Arsinoe II conspired to push out Ptolemy's wife. Number two, with the death of Lysimachus, the political usefulness of keeping Arsinoe I around had virtually disappeared, and Ptolemy II, above all else an independent king who made his own decisions, could have possibly wanted to get rid of her if he wanted to look for better prospects for political marriages. Not to mention that he only exiled her from the court, and allowed her to remain in Egypt. An inscription at Coptos possibly suggests she lived rather comfortably despite everything, and Ptolemy II made sure to retain his children with her as the primary heirs to the throne, rather than disowning them. It would be their son, soon to be known as Ptolemy III Eurgetes, who would succeed Ptolemy II, so despite Arsinoe's apparently notorious track record at getting rivals killed, she did not succeed here. I think it's an interesting argument because it does give Ptolemy II a much greater degree of political acumen, while at the same time acknowledging that while Arsinoe II could be quite cunning if she needed to be, she was no political mastermind capable of eliminating rivals in a similar fashion as Livia Augusta in the works of the Roman historian Tacitus. What would come next, however, would understandably contribute to the notion that Arsinoe II had something to do with the collapse of Ptolemy's marriage with his first wife. It's now time that we discuss the long-awaited and very complicated topic, royal incest. In 275, much to the shock of the Greek-speaking world, Ptolemy II would be married once again. Not to a cousin, not to a step-sibling, but his full-blooded sister, Arsinoe II marking the first, and certainly not the last, appearance of royal incest within the Ptolemaic dynasty. This requires a great amount of discussion, and is what we will spend the rest of the episode on because there's a lot to unpack. In the Greek world, marriages between relatives was deemed acceptable, but usually restricted to first cousins at the absolute most, while direct blood relations, such as parents with children or siblings with siblings, would be seen as deviant or aberrant behavior. In the context of royalty, especially during the early Hellenistic period, marriages between related families was rather common, especially because polygamy and marriage alliances for diplomatic reasons were the norm for the Hellenistic kings, so to some extent it would be inevitable that family trees would become intertwined to some degree. Some of the dynastic families of the Hellenistic world would branch out of the immediate slew of Macedonian royalty, but in the case of the Ptolemies, they would absolutely refuse to marry anyone outside of this Macedonian sphere. There are a number of practical reasons why the newly christened Ptolemy II Philadelphos, Philadelphos meaning sibling loving, 
would choose to marry within his own household. The decades of warring between the successors for the right to control Macedon has often been induced by a tie of marriage or descent to either the Argead house or any royal family who most recently controlled the Macedonian throne. If Ptolemy II married outside of the family, then theoretically he was opening up doors to future conflicts and succession crises from claimants of varying degrees of validity and ambitious character. If he married within the family, he is limiting the chance that any of his sister's biological children fathered by a rival king would try and interfere with the claims of his own biological children, as what would happen when Ptolemy III would try to conquer the Seleucid Empire in favor of a nephew conceived by his sister, who was married to the Seleucid king Antiochus II. The main function of royal marriages, aside from its diplomatic purposes, was for the production of children. But the marriage between Ptolemy and Arsinoe produced no offspring as far as we can tell. Ptolemy had three children of his own with his first wife, and Arsinoe still had her eldest son by Lysimachus. Despite the tendencies of some authors to ascribe Ptolemy's incestuous decision as being the product of some degenerate sexual appetite on his and or Arsinoe's part, there was no apparent indication that there was any sort of sexual motivation behind the marriage. I can't say that there is anything that conclusively proves that nothing happened behind closed doors, as later sibling marriages within the Ptolemaic dynasty did produce many offspring, but Ptolemy II was quite the womanizer, and had many mistresses over his career to keep himself busy. We can't also just look at it from Ptolemy's perspective either. Arsinoe's marriage to her brother would provide her with security and safety in her home country, and while she could no longer produce heirs that she could use to raise her status, she would be given the power she wanted as the premier lady of the royal household, and ultimately, queen of Egypt. This does not mean that there was not a negative backlash to either Ptolemy and Arsinoe's marriage, or Ptolemaic sibling matches in general. In the biological context of inbreeding, Anyone who has studied genetics to some degree understands that there can be huge problems with incestuous unions and the production of inbred offspring. Inbreeding does not usually spontaneously generate health issues in a vacuum. What causes such issues is a lack of genetic variation. Thus, there is a far greater chance that harmful alleles, a term referring to variant forms of a gene, which are otherwise recessive will become inherited appearing in greater and greater frequency over multiple generations, and ultimately leading to some rather horrifying complications. Famous examples of the consequences of inbreeding in royal households can be seen with the proliferation of hemophilia in the children and grandchildren of Queen Victoria. And the Spanish line of the Habsburg house had all but collapsed when the last ruler, Charles II, was afflicted with mental handicaps and a deformed jaw that prevented him from even eating or speaking properly. Looking at the House of Ptolemy, many historians have assumed with good reason that inbreeding depression must have occurred after almost 300 years of practicing it. But there is no record that there was an overall decline in the mental stability, nor a rise in physical deformities. Though some like Ptolemy IV and Ptolemy Physcon, the fat, could be quite decadent in their tastes and attitudes. I would like to point out though that the absence of evidence does not imply evidence of absence. And if a child was afflicted with any conditions brought about by inbreeding, I sincerely doubt that the Ptolemies would have wanted that information to be common knowledge anyways, and exposing unhealthy infants to die somewhere was not uncommon in the ancient world anyway. Almost certainly the marriage would have been controversial. 
Apparently, one of the courtiers at Alexandria named Sotades had made the unfortunate mistake of making jest at Ptolemy and Arsinoe's marriage. The joke, in its closest approximation to modern English, would be a reference to, quote, an unholy whole. The rest I will leave you to fill in with your imagination. Such an act would lead to his imprisonment and death, but the Ptolemies could not afford to imprison or execute everyone who had gossiped or made jokes in their own households. To justify their union, they instead turned to a precedent, that of the Egyptians and that of divinity. According to the Greeks like Pausanias, it was customary for the pharaohs to engage in co-sanguineous marriages. Looking back at almost 2,500 years of pharaonic rule prior to the Ptolemies, it was inevitable that incestuous marriages would come up here and there. A relatively recent study of the famous Tutankhamun had revealed that he was the product of a sibling marriage, and suffered problematic health effects as a consequence. But these marriages were very few and far between, and there is no evidence that this was the standard in Egyptian royal practices. However, what matters is that the Greeks believed it to be the case, and if the Ptolemies were imitating the customs of an ancient people, well, then perhaps it may have been easier to accept. This imitation of supposed Egyptian habits was predicated heavily on another aspect, practices of the gods. I've talked before about the nature of semi-divine rulership in the Hellenistic period, and how the common conception is that they were assumed to be walking, talking gods on earth. It is more accurate to say that they are accorded honors equivalent to the gods, isothioitimai, and they could achieve a divine status after their deaths. The Ptolemies would become masters at utilizing propaganda and imagery to closely associate themselves with this divine image, not only with their traditional or dynastic gods like Dionysius, Zeus, or Heracles, but perhaps, more importantly, the old gods of Egypt as well. In Egyptian mythology, the god Osiris and his sister wife Isis were the divine equivalent of the earthly pharaonic couple ruling over Egypt. They were well known to the Greeks, and the Ptolemies would extensively capitalize on their imagery to appease the native Egyptians by using familiar symbols to better reconcile them, despite the fact that the Ptolemies were a foreign dynasty who ruled from a tightly closed Greco-Macedonian circle. Imitating the practices of the divine allowed for a powerful propaganda tool to represent the strength of their dynasty. Coins from the period would bear the images of both Arsinoe and Ptolemy together, a strong unified front, where both individuals ruled as virtual equals, much in the same fashion as Isis and Osiris. This would also work from the perspective of the Greek pantheon. Both Hera and Zeus were siblings as well, and thus would function as another way to unify both the native Egyptians and their Greco-Macedonian rulers to some extent. The 3rd century poet Theocritus composed a panegyric to Ptolemy II, praising the marriage, drawing comparisons to the wedlock of Zeus and Hera as a way to both flatter and justify the policy of his paymasters. The benefits to the royal prestige were apparent. Ptolemy would establish a cult that declared himself and Arsinoe as Theoi Adelphoi, the sibling gods, and Arsinoe herself would later receive a special adulation as Theoi Philadelphoi, the sibling-loving god, where her cult would carry on in private homes across the Mediterranean. Some scholars have posited that the very exceptional or excess nature of such a marriage would signal how they were somehow above the mortal world, and that the closing off of the royal family from outside marriage gave them some kind of transcendent status, untouched by any lesser beings. 
I assume that this was all to Arsinoe's immense joy. She had retained her status as a queen, and now had placed herself into the realm of the divine, and was given immense personal and political power as part of her arrangement with her brother. With the union of Ptolemy Philadelphus and Arsinoe, though incestuous and deplorable to our modern sensibilities, the Egyptian throne now presented itself as a strong and unified front, establishing a precedent for the rest of the Ptolemaic rulers for the next 250 years. The royal couple could now continue to build up Alexandria as the greatest city in the world, which we will talk about extensively in the next episode. However, even though Ptolemy Carinus was now dead, and Arsinoe had received exactly what she wanted, there was no end to the family intrigue of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Magas, the step-sibling of Arsinoe and Ptolemy II, was preparing to set out on his own adventure, and threats from the outside, chiefly the Seleucid Empire under King Antiochus I, would test the resiliency of the self-proclaimed Isis and Osiris. Thank you all for listening, and in the next episode, we will continue discussing the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphos and Arsinoe II. In the meanwhile, if you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice, or if you want to keep up with show news, see interesting photos, or you just want to chat, you can follow me on a number of social media accounts like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord. Once again, I urge you to head to my website for the episode show notes in order to get access to my sources used and an extremely helpful family tree. If you want to support the show, leave me a review on iTunes or consider donating to my coffee page to help with upkeep and research. All of these links will be provided to you in the episode description, or by heading to www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com. Until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>